0: Dear Lord, we thank you once again that we can come here to study your word. We come to a very transitional passage this morning. We pray that we understand Moses' original intention in writing this passage for the Israelites in the Exodus. Uh, We pray that you give us a proper application for ourselves as well, that we are able to uh, take these ancient holy words and apply them to our lives today. We are not in the days of Noah. Those will be the days of the tribulation period, after the church has been taken out of this world. But the days do seem to be growing darker, and we pray for your guidance just as you guided Noah, and we rest our faith on you just as Noah did. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right. As I said, we're at a transitional point. This is the last set of scriptures in our third section of Genesis, our third sermon series, where we've been asking this question, is there any hope for man? It seems pretty bleak the last five weeks or so. We've seen that there have been revivals, but it's been about a thousand years since there's been a revival. And since that time, angels have come down and mingled with mankind and corrupted man. So in this passage, we actually get the answer to three different questions. How bad can it get? Does God change his mind? And is there any hope for man? The main point up front, once again, God's grace towards man, his unmerited favor is the only hope we have. God's judgment never comes due without an offer of salvation. So we begin by asking the question, just how bad does it get? And we have to ask on what authority can this assessment be made? Because Genesis 6-5 opens with these words, the Lord saw. Just a couple of verses earlier, we saw a different entity making decisions, coming down and observing things and deciding for themselves rather than seeking God's word on the matter. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whoever they chose. Their authority was self, not God. This is getting to be a pattern of God's creatures. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate. Do we remember what was going on with Eve? She had received a direct revelation from God, his word stating that eating that tree would result in death, but she reassessed the situation on her own authority. And so did the angels reassess their situation, not on God's authority, but their own. You could say they were wise in their own eyes rather than seeking the Lord. Now, this really is the the basis of wisdom. It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 2, 1 through 2, we read that, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, he preserves the way of the godly ones. So when we're looking to assess situations, we go see what God has to say on the situation. Israel is going to be asked to do the same thing. Here in Proverbs, a book written by Solomon, the last king of the united kingdom of Israel, he writes, So you will walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous, for the upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. Now, we remember that Genesis is written to the Exodus generation of Israel on their way to the promised land. Moses has been writing Genesis to them to show them the consequences of seeking a different authority. Eve did that. Satan did that. The angels who are reserved in Tartarus did that. Moses is warning them not to do that. Solomon, coming towards the end of the United Kingdom, is once again referring back to these ancient words, the blameless will remain in it, in the land, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be uprooted from it. Deuteronomy 4.1, which Moses wrote, just as they were about to enter Israel, but not the first generation, mind you, the second generation, Deuteronomy four one he writes Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Enjoyment of the blessing, enjoyment of the promise of the land was contingent on obedience. Deuteronomy twelve, eight through nine we see that they were inclined in a different direction, which leads us to a a nice answer of why has Moses recorded these events of Noah's day. Because in Deuteronomy 12, eight through nine, it says you shall not do all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Israel was making assessments of situations, not on God's authority, but on their own. So Moses is recording these events these historical events, to show them what happens when you do what is right in your own eyes instead of in God's eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Sadly, once they get there, they don't quite learn the lesson. The last verse in Judges is kind of a downer. Actually, the whole book is a bit of a downer, but you can see God's hand working through it. Judges 21:25 ends saying, In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone seeking to be the authority rather than seeking God's perfect assessment of their situation. So what was God's assessment of Noah's generation that we can learn from? He had six things to say about what he observed. All that the Lord saw was the wickedness of man, and that it was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. This is a pretty negative assessment. I have only on very rare occasions received these kinds of assessments on my homework assignments, and uh, never do I feel very good receiving that kind of assessment actually I had one assessment telling me that uh, prepositions actually have meaning, and I can't just make up meanings. So that's an aside. The wickedness of man. What did God mean by the wickedness of man? He gives us a little more detail later on. In Genesis 6:11. 11 it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. These are outward acts. These are external manifestations of the sin which was in their heart. See, sin can't be contained just to the heart. It comes out in actions. When sin is let to manifest, it brings about death. Another argument from James. But not only was this wickedness acting out, but it was great. It was great on the earth. And now this is not talking about the depth of the wickedness in the individual, but the breadth of the wickedness in humanity. It was affecting absolutely everyone. Everyone was involved in this wicked violence. So this is where we can uh, see the doctrine of total depravity, but it's not speaking of the individual as completely incapable of any good except in this unique situation. But it is talking about this great evil not being absent from any individual. How do we know that? Because this great evil was on the earth, all over the earth, and it spread everywhere. Now, this is a very interesting one, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually, Now, once again, I'm going to complain about our Bibles being in English, but it's probably for the best that they are. However, this word intent is the exact same word as God uses when he creates man. Here it is rendered formed. The Hebrew word yetzar, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This speaks of intentional creation, a plan that is being brought out, something that was planned, designed, and then executed. These intents of their hearts are not accidental. These intents are the wicked laying nets To ensnare the righteous, they are planning out their wicked acts, and they are executing them faithfully. And it says that this this was only evil. Now, when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, he's going to tell them that even you know how to give good gifts to your children. He's calling them evil, but he's saying you're still capable of doing some good. Here, before the flood, the situation has gotten so bad that there are no intentions that are good. We might almost parallel this with the Gospels and say they don't even know how to give good gifts to their children at this point. Think about the children that are being produced at that time. Wickedness is pervasive over the entire earth. These days of Noah are something that we have not seen yet, and that should frighten us. Because we are told that the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, it's going to get a lot worse. But it gets worse because the church is taken out of the way beforehand. The church will be raptured. The Holy Spirit, being in the church, will be taken out of this earth and not indwelling the body of the church on the earth, because the church won't be on the earth. When that restrainer is removed, once again, all the intents of man will be evil all the time. That's why the book of Revelation is sometimes a little hard to read. Yeah, the judgments of God are difficult to observe, but the reaction of man is even harder to stomach. At the end of each cycle of judgment in Revelation... Man, instead of repenting, turns and blasphemes God. They thumb their nose at God. That's what's happening here before the flood. And this evil is continuous. It is habitual. It is not just something that man fall into occasionally. It is their day-to-day activities. Now, we live in a world that uh, has a lot of evil in it. But we do, because of the presence of the church in this earth, God's grace towards us preserving a people for himself. There still is good in this earth. It would be hard to say that absolutely every single intention of man is evil all the time. We come scarily close at times. But thanks be to God that he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is only by the presence of the Holy Spirit in this earth that we have not reached the same corruption as was in the days of Noah and will be during the tribulation. In Ecclesiastes 8.11, it says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. What is required here to stave off evil? justice, judgment. And that is coming by God, and after the flood, God is going to put in an institution, a divine institution, to stave off evil. That institution is civil government. We'll find out as we move through Genesis 10 and 11 that civil government can also be corrupted for evil purposes. But its purpose on earth is to hinder evil. Government's should be law and order, governments, not social handout programs. Ecclesiastes 8 continues, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. Even in the midst of evil, God extends his grace, but it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his day's like a shadow, because he does not fear God. Man's heart is antithetical to God's heart here before the flood. It says, the intents of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. In the next verse, we see God's heart on the matter. We get God's thoughts, then we get his emotions towards this. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. While man is pervasively evil in his heart, God is grieving in his. And this is not just looking at man harming himself. It's not looking at man harming creation, but it has an eschatological view looking forward to the future history of redemption. Because all of these wicked acts of man are going to be laid on his son. All of this evil that mankind is engaged in continually, it is racking up a sin debt. A sin debt which is going to be laid on Christ's shoulders on the cross. God is grieving in his heart for mankind but it is his son who is going to take on that grief. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and he, we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each one of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation is Jesus Christ acting as the wrath bearer of God, that wrath which man deserves because of disobedience, because he's assessed the situation himself, he, like a sheep, has gone astray from the words of God, from the commandments of God, and he has acted wickedly so that when he assesses his own situation, he sees himself prospering on the earth, but when God assesses the situation, he's grieved in his heart. And so Jesus Christ takes on that penalty that mankind deserves in order to save us. Now, Genesis 6, 6, and 6, 7 are going to tell us about the results of God's observations. When he observed what was happening on the earth, he makes a divine judgment. And it's the end of a period of grace that he has extended. It is not the end of his grace, but it is the end of a period defined by grace. You'll remember it's been about 1,200 years that God has been striving with man in his spirit. And God has announced to Noah that there are 120 years left of his grace. Well, he is coming to the end of that period of grace. says, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, once again, the English doesn't do this justice because this is a parallel verse to Genesis 5.29, but each word that is the same in Hebrew is translated differently in the English, so we don't easily see the parallels. Now, it wouldn't make much sense if they were translated the same because it wouldn't fit the context because English words are not a one for one with Hebrew words. They have different lexical domains. Here in Genesis five twenty-nine, Lamech gives a prophecy about his son, and it's a little off key. It doesn't hit right. He hasn't quite assessed the situation correctly. He says, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now, Noah is a play on words. It sounds like the word rest. They're not related. Noah means comfort, not rest. But there are a couple parallels here between these two verses. It's as if God is answering Lamech in his judgment. You see, Lamech said this one, speaking of Noah, will give us rest, Naham, from our work. Was this ever the promise of God? Or is this man assessing the situation? Because when we get to Genesis 6.6, 6, the Lord was sorry, Naham, that he had made man. Lamech believed that Noah would give us rest from our work. Meshech. But instead, the Lord is sorry for the work of his own hands that he made man. Lamech believed that Noah would give us rest from our toil, the toil of our hands. But instead, God is grieved in his heart. Now you see, these words don't look the same in English, but they are in the Hebrew. God is answering Noah, or he is answering Lamech rather, reminding Lamech that our hope is not in a man. Our hope is in God. Lamech comes at the very end of a seed promise that was last stated to Adam and Eve about their son Seth. We have no record of it being restated. This doctrine may have been corrupt by the time it got to Lamech so that he misunderstood. Just as Eve had misunderstood about her son Cain. So Lamech misunderstood and placed his trust in Noah rather than the final seed. Of course, Lamech, watching the world about to end because of God's judgment, does not know that God is going to bring Noah through that judgment to the other side and that he would recreate the earth through Noah's line. And so in a way, Lamech's prophecy was true but it is proper theology misapplied. Psalm 118.8, we read, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. You see, no matter how good Noah was, he could never give righteousness. Noah is accounted righteous, but not because of his own inherent goodness, but because he has not trusted in man. He has not trusted in princes. He has placed his trust in the Lord, and the Lord is going to find favor in him for that. But in, uh, his spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Psalm 62, my soul wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. O, on God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is not the spirit of Lamech's prophecy. When he looks at Noah, he says this one. Noah will give us rest from from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. This sounds a bit like Adam and Eve. Lord, the woman which you gave me, she gave me, and I ate. Lamech is speaking negatively of God and positively of the son which God has given him. He's put his trust in the wrong place. Now, Lamech dies five years before the flood. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so Noah, or Lamech, got to see his son, pointing his finger towards God instead of himself. Hopefully, in, no- or in Lamech's 777 years, he was converted to faith in God alone and not man by his son Noah. Because Noah is really only the beginning of the seed line promise. In Genesis 9, God is going to reaffirm this promise to Noah. And this will be the third affirmation. But there are many left to go on the path to Emmanuel, on the path to the final seed, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, once again, the English... Translator has a hard time with Genesis 6.6, especially in this one word, because it seems to challenge some of our doctrine. Unfortunately, a lot of translations are made based on doctrinal issues and not lexical issues. But here, I think the NASB has done a decent job. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. The ESV, the NIV, and the NET use this word regret. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. KJV has one that's a bit problematic. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. But repentance is just a change of mind. We mix it up with sorrow and say that repentance must have an element of sorrow in it. That's not true. The Bible never uses it exclusively of changing your mind because of sorrow. In fact, you can change your mind about your sorrow. You can change your mind from sorrow to joy. And you don't have to be sorry about that. But it's still repentance. But the issue is God changing his mind. Because in James 1.17, it says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God does not change. How can his mind change? In Numbers 23.19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make good? How about in 1 Samuel 15? Samuel said to him, that is to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. The glory of Israel here is used as a name for God. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So how is it that God is changing his mind? Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. See, just a little earlier in the chapter, 1 Samuel 15, 11, we see how it is that God appears to change his mind. The word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. We have God regretting. We have God changing his mind. Too often we stop there and we don't look at why. For he, Saul, has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. God is not changing his mind. Saul is changing his actions. 1 Samuel 15.26, a couple verses later, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. When Saul first became king, he did not reject the word of the Lord. In fact, he danced and sang and prophesied when the Lord chose him. The Lord did not change his mind about Saul. Saul changed his mind about God. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This happened in Nineveh as well. The Lord relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. He changed his mind. But we know the theology of what was happening with Jonah and Nineveh. Nineveh repented. They changed their mind about God, And God relented, consistent with his character. We see this for Israel as well. Jeremiah 26.2, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word, a high importance placed on the word of God, the commandments of God, We've seen a low importance from Eve and from the sons of God. Israel is told to have a high importance for the words of God. Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way, that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he has pronounced against you. Does God change his mind willy-nilly? No. Does God treat two situations without a change on man's part in two different ways? No. We look back to an example we had a few weeks ago. Probably some of you guys' favorite topic to talk about. None of you were uncomfortable as I spoke about it. Incest and the Bible. Where did Cain get his wife? It was his sister. Was this an issue? No. Then why does God ban incest for Israel during the law? Because man's situation changed. Because of genetic mutations, it became difficult. It became impossible. It became a threat to life. And you see, without, man, without Cain marrying his sister, there could be no continuation of life. So it was a means of preserving life to begin with, but it became a hindrance to life because of genetic mutations. And so God changed his mind, or appeared to. But really, it goes back to the heart of the situation. In both cases, God is acting to preserve life. So does God repent? God does not change his mind. Not in the sense that man changes his mind. He cannot change. When he changes his mind or repents, God's attitude towards man changes in accordance with God's change with man's change, so that God's actions are always consistent with his nature and action. God is able to deal with man in diverse ways while still remaining absolutely consistent to his nature. So when we see that God is changing his mind about man on the earth, it is representative of man's change towards God on the earth. That revival that happened after Seth is long gone. God's patience is wearing thin, his justice must be enacted, because God and God alone can hold justice and mercy in the same hand. But if God does not act at any time, then he is not just. He must act consistently within his nature because he does not change. And now we get to talk about the responsibility. God is judging, he's judging mankind, but he's also going to judge the entire earth. We'll see that it is, the responsibility is squarely on us for this issue. Because, in Genesis 3.22, God again makes an assessment of mankind. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Man has come to have an intimate knowledge of good and evil. Man becomes responsible for acting in that knowledge, to choose all good and to avoid all evil. That is the human test in the dispensation of conscience, which we have been in since the fall. We're about to leave it. At the end of the next sermon series, we will be in a different dispensation in the text. That human test has always been to act appropriately in conscience, to avoid evil, to do good. And the human failure, then, is wickedness because man has every faculty available to him to accept God's judgment on a matter and to accept it and to walk in it. But he instead corrupts himself and becomes entirely wicked. In Romans 2.14, we read about God passing over the sins of those before the law including those under conscience. And this is where we get the term conscience for that dispensation. It says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. Often the question comes up, did God not save anyone outside of Israel during the law? The law is not the requirement for salvation. Faith is. The law was a requirement to Israel given to them for fellowship with God, walking with God. It was sanctification, pointing towards the Messiah, because they were being carved out of humanity To preserve the line of Messiah. And so the conscience of mankind, when properly calibrated to God, helps man distinguish right from wrong, even without the word of God. But there's the issue, right? How do we calibrate our conscience without the word of God? That is what was happening before the Flood. No longer was the Word of God held to the degree of importance that it should have been. Instead, rather than holding God's Word up as a standard for their conscience to which they could calibrate it, they became corrupt in their conscience, so that even their conscience was not stopping them from the wicked that they were doing. Our conscience is not absolute authority. God's word is, we need to tune our conscience to his authority by reading his word, by accepting his word when we read it, no matter how challenging it might be to us, I guarantee if you accept it, God will make it easy for you to accept. And so God's judgment is stated, and once God states his judgment, he does not relent of that judgment. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here's a quote from Abraham Karuvula. Sin uncontrolled, with one doing whatever one decides is good for oneself, leads to loss of godliness and gain of worldliness. Inviting retribution from a grieved God. The debt is about to come due, and all those who have not staked their destiny in God's promise, those who have not held God's word in high regard and sought God's word on the matter, are going to be blotted out from the earth. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip that. We'll talk about it when we get to Exodus. But in Genesis 18, 25, Abraham is going to contend with God about a different situation. And he'll say, Far be it from you to do such a thing in judging Sodom, to lay the righteous with the wicked. So that... The righteous and the wicked are treated alike, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? God is going to blot out mankind. But just as in Sodom, he is not going to blot out the righteous together with the wicked. How does God draw that division in Sodom? Was Lot a better person than the rest of the people in Sodom? We have evidence in the text that he was not. But there was one thing that made him different than the others. He believed in God's promise. He was a child of God. He was in a state of rebellion, a state of separation from God. He was not in fellowship. He was not righteous based on his works. He was righteous based on God's works that he received through faith alone, just as Adam, or just as uh, Abraham, rather, had received it on faith alone, just as Noah receives his righteousness through faith alone. But that paints a picture of the day in which Noah is living. Because God does not judge the righteous together with the wicked. And so if only eight made their way onto the ark, then there were only eight from that generation, which we talked about could have been in the billions. There were only eight who were saved. You know, the tribulation period, which is what Jesus is speaking about in the Olivet Discourse when he says... Those days will be like the days of Noah. A little later, Jesus says in the olive that discourse that the days will have to be shortened otherwise there would be no life left. I don't think many will make it to the end of the tribulation. It's not going to be the time you want to be alive. Thankfully, we, as the church, have a different hope. We don't look for the Antichrist, we look for the Christ, because he is going to gather us in the clouds beforehand. And things aren't going to get out of hand until we are gone, because it's the Holy Spirit that is restraining. But why here is God judging everything, from man, to animal, to creeping thing, to birds of the sky, because who is in charge? Who has been given responsibility over creation? Ultimately, God, but man's responsibility was to rule on God's behalf. The earth is man's kingdom that God has entrusted him with, and he has corrupted it. And so when God gives us his purpose statement for creating man, in Genesis 1.26, he says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This requirement of man to rule... On God's behalf, over the earth, was lost by Adam. He failed to do this. That brought in the need for a second Adam, Jesus Christ, who will rule over this earth before it perishes, before it passes away. But we haven't yet had much time to talk about the purpose for Israel. God was restoring the rule of this earth to a kingdom, preparing the kingdom for the king to come and sit on that throne. And he puts Moses over that kingdom to begin with. And so Adam acted as a theocratic administrator. That means acting on behalf of the law of God. A man who was placed there in order to rule the earth on God's behalf. Moses was put in that place over Israel, not to rule the earth, but to rule over Israel on God's behalf. And in Exodus 32, we see, I think, why God's heart towards Israel continues to have patience, because about as often as they have bad rulers, they have good rulers, godly rulers like David men after God's own heart. And here we have an episode in Exodus 32 where God threatens to blot out all of Israel, to start over again with Moses. And Moses acting as that theocratic administrator changes God's mind. Not because God has changed, but because Moses, as the one responsible for Israel, has demonstrated his heart towards God. In Exodus thirty two, it says they have acted, or they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, they have made for themselves in molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is our God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, then, I have seen this people, and behold they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make you a great nation. God is testing Moses. Moses, the stand-in Adam. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants in the stars of heaven and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit forever. Who is Moses concerned with? Is he saying, oh God, they're not that bad? Moses' heart towards God demonstrates that Moses held God's word in high regard. God had made a promise to Abraham. Moses understood that that was an unconditional promise, that it was not conditioned on mankind's obedience, but that he would bring it about just in the same way as he said he would. So Moses demonstrates as this leader of Israel that there is hope for Israel, not because the people have acted Acted righteously, but because the leader that God has given them is responsible for them. And he has acted in in accordance with God's righteousness. And so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Prayer is effective. This was a very effective prayer of Moses. The episode isn't quite over because now we get to see, after God has tested Moses as the leader of Israel, we see yet again Moses acting in accordance with God's heart towards Israel, with God's heart towards his promises. So on the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Atonement is a replacement. Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sins, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. God has carved Israel out in order to prepare the way for the one who will make atonement for all of mankind. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. The Lord will not accept Moses as an atonement for their sins. But there is an atonement coming for their sins. They look forward to it. We look backward on it. That is Jesus Christ, the greatest product of Israel. But go now, lead the people where I told you, behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what he did, what they did with the calf, which Aaron had made. Now, God did change his mind towards Israel. God did not start over again with Moses. But salvation is on an individual level. God spared Israel. But God did enact judgment. He did not destroy the entire nation, but gave them another generation to produce a generation which would inherit the land. Not, well, I can't say not one, only two from that generation which sinned entered into the land. Only Caleb and Joshua. Only two were not held responsible for that sin. Now, there were at least ten sins, God says, in Numbers, that led to their destruction, that led to their being barred from the land. And they all had to do with trusting God's word. Trusting God's promise about bringing them into the land. But Moses, as the head of that nation was able to spare that nation through prayer. So we come to our last point, is there any hope for man? It seems a little bleak. But here for the first time in scripture, we come to one of the greatest doctrines that we have ever come to understand through the Word of God, and that is the doctrine of grace. This is the first instance in which God uses this word. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, the Hebrew word hen, which means grace, unmerited favor, not because of the man himself, not because Noah was righteous by himself, but because Noah found righteousness in God. Proverbs 3.31, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious are an abomination to the Lord. He is intimate with the upright, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Noah received God's grace. And it was grace through faith. In Hebrews eleven six 6 and 7, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah is in the faith hall of fame. Hebrews 11. Along with Abel, along with Seth, or Enoch rather, and along with Abraham. Noah not only stands out among his generation, he stands out among every generation as one who placed his faith in God when the rest of the world did not. Talk about counterculture. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. This is exactly what Noah did. He did not put his trust in himself. He did not put his trust in anyone else. He put his trust in God. God alone and God's promises, and we do this too. In Titus 2, it says, for, gray, for the grace of God has a, appeared Bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Doing what? Looking for the blessed hope. Looking for the promise that He has given to us of being saved before judgment. Because as 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, we are not destined for wrath we have a different destiny. Our position has already been settled. Every debt paid at the cross. And through faith alone, we receive God's righteousness through Christ. We look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our hope in that blessed hope leads us to good deeds. Good deeds do not lead us to that blessed hope. We are obedient because we are saved, we are obedient out of thankfulness, we are enabled for good works because we are already saved. We cannot become saved by doing good works. It doesn't work that way. Ephesians 2, 8-9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And this held true for Noah. Nothing he did Brought God's favor on him. But because he simply believed in God's work, God saved him through judgment. This is a message that is important for Israel as well, and it falls on deaf ears. Not by works of the law, but by God. Through faith in Him, through His promises, they would be saved. They have multiple revivals. Throughout their history, the church has multiple revivals throughout its history. But unfortunately, this doctrine of grace falls by the wayside. It's the first casualty. And then faith gets backloaded with every single unbiblical doctrine they can possibly cram into it. Faith doesn't mean simple belief, they say, it means belief that demonstrates itself in works. That's works salvation. If you are not working, you are not saved. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that's not true. There will be those who have no works on their account at the judgment day. But what does it say? They will be saved, but as though through fire. It will be a day of shame for them but it will not be a day it will not be their first day in hell it will be their first day in heaven they will have no crowns to throw before the feet of the lord but they will be there nonetheless not because they did any good but because jesus christ did all the good and through faith alone they received that free gift of god so now that we have that free gift of god we do not want to be ashamed On the day in which He comes to take us home, we want to be spurred on to good works by means of the Holy Spirit. We want to be led by Him and doing His works, not to add to our salvation, but to glorify Him. And so, our takeaway for today there is hope for man but only in the arms of God. No man, no family member, no politician, no efforts by ourselves will ever add anything to our salvation. God's grace alone through faith in him alone, apart from works of our own, is our perfect hope. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this gift that you have given us that you have been gracious towards us who do not deserve it because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned, but you have laid our penalty on the shoulders of your son and he has paid that price perfectly. And so by grace through faith, we can be saved apart from any works of our own. We thank you for all these wonderful things, Lord, and we thank you that you have given us hope that we know that we will be saved by you and that we will be glorified together with you. We thank you for all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.